Lord, uh, we thank you for today. Uh, we thank you for the sunshine. We thank you for um, shaping history for your purposes, Lord. Um, we ask that you would come here and uh, humble our hearts, Lord, and our minds. That we'd uh, receive your word and your spirit, Lord. That we wouldn't quench your spirit and uh, reject your grace and your goodness to us, Lord. Please humble me as I speak uh, and humble all those hearing, Lord, um, that your words would cut through all of it and cut through uh, our flesh to our hearts, Lord. Pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so title, Identity in Relation to Abba Father. Uh, forgot the comma there. Doesn't matter. Um, and before we get into this, this is part four of Romans 8. John Gray, I was giving him a break. Um, as you can imagine, as a, a father of three who works full time, uh, preaching every Sunday is a lot. So keep the grays in your prayers, please. Um, so anyways, he did the hard work. He, uh, if we go to the outline here, I'm going to review what he's done so far. He got through all of Romans 8, and I'm just going to uh, hopefully humbly uh, and maybe competently tie all of those things together. Uh, we'll see. Um, I went back and, and listened to all of his sermons a second time and tried to kind of pull the... Uh, heart of what he was trying to say, and more importantly, the heart of Romans 8 and something uh, that's closely related to my heart. So we're going to review that. We're going to talk about what I think is at the center of this chapter, which is the phrase, Abba, Father. Uh, I think it's a super important term, especially for us in, in this day to understand what Abba, Father means, because, uh, you know, currently, and I guess probably for all of history, everyone's had really bad dads. And so we need to understand what, it, what Abba Father means to understand the gospel. And in relation to that, we also need to understand what adoption is. I think we also have a lot of wrong ideas about what adoption is. And, uh, you know, that can be seen in the fact that not everyone adopts kids. <laughs> um, and what it means for us to be children. So, again, we're getting back to that idea. How do we relate? Who is Abba Father, and how do we relate to him? Or, more importantly, how does he relate to us? So, in our review, uh, in part one, John Gray titled his sermon, Christ Condemned Sin in the Flesh. And if we go to Galatians five seventeen through 18, I think this kind of sums up uh, his main theme in that sermon. Uh, I think he got from, he went back to Romans 7 to set some groundwork. And I think he made it all the way up to Romans 4. So he got through four verses in Romans <laughs> in his uh, introduction to Romans 8. But here's Galatians five seventeen through 18. For the desire of the flesh is against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, in order to keep you from doing whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So we go back to Romans 7, and there's this uh, 
whole analogy of, of one husband and then a second husband, and then we talk about the law and uh, what it was like being married to the law and being under the law versus being married to Christ and being under Christ's grace and, and his sacrifice. Uh, and, and Paul expertly did, lays out this, this internal struggle that I think is really true to um, a lot of Christians. I think, uh, you know, when Catherine was talking about the movement in the 18th century, the evangelical movement, one key theme was every believer should have this conversion experience. They should experience new life and what, you know, the assurance of faith. And, uh, and I think if you call yourself a Christian and you experience that, a part of that experience is what Paul was wrestling in Romans 7, was I'm doing what I hate to do. Like, why is my flesh and the spirit struggling still? I'm covered by grace. I'm not under the law. Uh, why don't I do what I want? And he follows that with Romans 8. Okay, And we see here... Um, I, I got a really good word here. Our flesh... John Gray made a, a point to say that our flesh isn't the thing that sins. And errantly, our hands aren't evil. Our eyes aren't evil. You know, our flesh is not evil. But it's our flesh that gives way or gives uh, movement that employs the sin that's in our hearts that we are slaves to. That's the first argument laid out in Romans 8. And again, it's been laid out through all of Romans is that we're sinners. And if you don't think you are, try not to sin someday and see how it goes. You know, I've had this argument with people before. They think they're pretty good people. And I say, okay, but have you tried to stop doing this or this and this? And they're like, well, I don't really want to try and stop. And I was like, exactly, <laughs> because you're sinful. You're a sinner. Your heart is a slave to sin. And obviously, Christ is the only way to overcome that sin. So then we jump to part two, uh, titled, Why Did Christ Die For Us? That's a good question. Did Christ die for us because we were like super good people and he wanted us on his team because uh, without us, uh, Christ would be lost? No. <laughs> it was simply out of his love for us. And I, I see the, the locus classicus of this summed up in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. So let's read that. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer person is decaying, our inner person is renewed day by day. For our momentary, momentary, one glimpse, one moment, light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Um, if I tried to sum up what, what John Gray said, um, I'd say God ordains suffering to humble us and make us receptive to his grace. Suffering is a part of God's plan. Suffering is a good part of God's plan. It's the best way. And if we understand that and apprehend that, that suffering is actually ordained by God, 
we can stop hating our suffering, these temporal, these momentary light afflictions, and embrace them and love them and find Christ in them. Uh, that's one of the great benefits of being a Christian. If outside of Christ, suffering is just that, it's suffering. It's pointless, it's useless. One of the big arguments against Christianity is why does God allow suffering? Well, you know, why, why if, if they call on God, does someone still get cancer? Or someone die before, you know, before old age? Or why did I lose my job if God is good? And if you're not a Christian, that suffering has no point, has no purpose. But if you are a Christian, that point is the baptism in Christ's suffering. It's joining in with him. It's being a part of what he's gone through. It's understanding what life would be like without him. So our time here on earth is, is uh, a wonderful thing. Is the, the time we're between becoming a Christian and between being joined to, together again with the Lord in heaven is like we get glimpses of, of what heaven is, what perfection is, and we get glimpses of what an eternity of hell would be like. And this contrast is like such a beautiful thing to show us really the big difference between them. You know, it's like you don't know what a good meal is unless you've had a really bad one. So I hope everyone's had a bad meal before. And I hope everyone gets an opportunity to have a good one. But again, this is the suffering. This humility point is going to come, you know, this is like a main point here, humility. And uh, Josiah's been talking about this for weeks now, and hopefully we get it. Um, we have to humble ourselves, otherwise the suffering doesn't have a point. And you are going to suffer. That's just it, okay? No one escapes difficulty. Rain, the rain rains on every man. At some point, you know, maybe disease, uh, lost relationships, and ultimately everyone faces death. We all suffer. And unless you can humble yourself to see that Christ is working through this, that you can know Christ through this, that there's beauty in this, uh, it's for naught. It's wasted. And then in part three, uh, we looked at the end of Romans and saw how Christ chose us, and it wasn't the other way around. We didn't choose Christ. And if I were to sum this up, I'd say that uh, we were called by God into his family to do his work. Those are like three really important, po important points. So if you look at John fifteen sixteen, it says, you, do, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. All right, so we, we'll re reference back to these messages a little bit as, as I go on. But first, let's talk about Abba Father. Uh, this is a phrase used only by... Uh, Jesus Christ and by Paul in the New Testament. 
Um, there's a lot written about it. Uh, one is that both in, in this section, Abba, Father, they're using an Aramaic word and, and a Hebrew word. And uh, a lot of people that look back at it, look back at it as a colloquial thing. If you go to Jerusalem today, kids still call their dads Abba. Uh, so it's still a word that's used. And uh, there's a lot written and try, people trying to understand about it. But I really liked this quote, and I'll, I'll probably add some other ideas and thoughts about it before we go on. But this quote in particular by a uh, German theologian says, Jesus spoke to God as a child to its father. And uh, I think this sums it up in a way. Uh, oftentimes, People in modern day try and say that Abba is like saying daddy, right? Like a little kid saying daddy. Um, but I, I don't think it hits it quite on the nose um, because, you know, daddy's kind of, uh, it's like for really little kids, you know. And really little kids, they have that confidence and security in their father. But I think a lot of times they don't have that reverence and obedience to their father, that uh, comes with age and understanding. It's like why parents are always saying, you'll understand when you get older. If they understood then, they would be obedient and, and reverent to their father. But it takes time. It takes growing up. It, uh, and so a lot of studies have been done about it, and, and it's less like a little child, uh, like two or three years old, who's just learning how to talk, uh, and it's more like a grown child that knows their father and knows his wishes uh, and loves him and trusts him and, and still has that confidence and security um, in their father. So I love that quote. That they, Christ, this is how Jesus Christ spoke to, to his father. Okay. Um, and again, this is Jesus Christ also being God didn't see God as being something to be obtained. He, he didn't count like, you know, we're on the same level. We're both God equally, so I don't have to have reverence or obedience towards you. I think that's another thing is a lot of times we come to God and think, you know, like I've got life figured out. I've got this or that figured out. I know a little bit better than you. Uh, so why should I obey you and not myself? And so we miss the reverence and obedience. And a lot of times, we have the other identity of coming to, to God uh, thinking that he doesn't love us, thinking that he's not good to us. And because of that, we aren't confident in him and what he's going to do. We aren't secure. We're full of anxieties and fears. So when we're talking about Abba Father today, like this is the key point. I really want to drive home this Abba Father thing because it's a reframing of our whole ways of thinking in our society. It's a reframing of, you know, big picture our society. We need to rethink it and, uh, you know, more discreetly, we need to rethink this in our own very specific, your life. What do you think a father is? You need to ask that. 
Because right now, Paul's saying, Abba, Father. He's like, this is such an important idea, I need to use two words to describe it. Abba, Father. I'm trying to sum up all of who a father should be. Uh, and the fact is, is, we just don't have the right context or words to describe what a good father is, really. Uh, it's hard for us to look at examples in life and say, this is a good father. The Bible even says, uh, you whose fathers are evil, <laughs> you know, who are evil fathers, like know how to give good gifts, uh, how much more your heavenly father, who's a good father. He's the good father. So I just, before we really get into it, think about your dad. Think about your father. Whether you knew him, didn't know him, hated him, loved him, whatever you know about your dad, think about it. Think about who he is and how he relates to you. And try to understand that God isn't your earthly father. He's your heavenly father. He's better than your earthly father. Whoever you are, no matter how great you think your dad is or how awful you think your dad is, God's better. And we need to understand where we're coming from so that we can go to where we need to to So the, we'll lay this thought out there. A father gives us an inheritance. Basically, a father gives us our start in life. And a lot of fathers have given bad starts to our lives. We talk about a father who runs out on a child before they're born is giving their child a really bad start. Or a father who's never emotionally available giving their child a really bad start. The starting of the gospel starts with what inheritance God is giving us. And so if we don't understand what that inheritance is, we're not going to apprehend that inheritance. What I'm saying is like if there's some trust fund hidden somewhere that your father left for you, but you didn't know what it was and you didn't know where it was, you're never going to use that inheritance because you, to you it doesn't even exist. We need to know who God is as our Father to understand the inheritance, to understand the gospel, to understand, uh, you know, like in Romans, what gifts are waiting there for us to have. The Bible talks about going, you know, I found your word in a field. <laughs> I found the, like the treasure, this treasure, the word of God, I found it in a field. Like, it's already there. And all I need to do is go back and secure it and, and apprehend it and grab hold of it. So this inheritance, the, you know, what Romans 8 talks about is there. It's accessible to us. It's not far off. God is not far off. He's not removed. He's there, and we need to see him. So who is God first? Uh, I only listed three attributes here. Honestly, uh, there's, I mean, I've seen like a list of 15, 20, like there's a lot of lists of God's attributes um, and a lot of them are, have really long definitions and some confusing ideas or words that you may not know the word, but uh, go up and look them up in a systematic theology book sometime. But the ones I've 
kind of highlighted here that I think sum up a lot of his attributes are, first, he's holy, which means he's set apart, he's righteous, he's, he's perfect. He's so perfect that oftentimes uh, the Bible says, holy, holy, holy. He's not just holy, he's like, holy, 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 like, he's holier than holy, he's perfect. There's nothing wrong found in him, whereas in us, there's nothing good found in us. But he's also good. He has good intentions. Okay? I know lots of people who, are, who lead pretty holy lives uh, who do not have good intentions, who are not good people. But God is good, and he loves us. He, like that, I want us to think about his love being wrapped up in his goodness. And he's also able, like he's capable, okay? It it doesn't matter how good-natured you are um, if you don't have the resources or the ability to give that love out, it's not doing anyone a whole lot of good. You can have the best intentions, but unless the rubber meets the road, it's all for naught. So he's holy, he's good, he's able... And I want to talk about what he does out of that, like what God the Father's role is. Because this is, you know, as earthly examples of, you know, as earthly fathers, we're trying to follow the great example set out by God. These are things we also want to be as fathers on earth. But these three key points are like really sum up who God the Father is and what how he relates to us and the first is that he protects us so if you turn to second thessalonians 3 3 but the lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one right so and you could say another attribute of god is that he's eternal Okay, he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And if he's going to be, you know, that that kind of adds into that faithful. If you're going to be faithful, it means like you can trust the person to be there when you need them. God is the only one who can be because he's the only one who's eternal. A key point in scripture that differentiates, God says, you know, differentiates himself from all the other gods is he says, I don't sleep. I don't sleep. These other gods, you know, they wake up, they go to bed. You know, he says they have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, and they do not hear. But I'm, I'm awake all the time, day and night. Summer, winter, and all, all the transitions in between, I'm there. Before you were created, I was there. Before time was, I was there. When time ends, I'll be there. And that's who he is. And because of that, he can protect you always, day and night. You know, a father who's not there with their child cannot protect them. Cannot defend them. A key strategy in winning a battle against 
uh, a force that's bigger than you is to make sure that that force is not there guarding the home base when you come to attack. Because if they're not there, it doesn't matter how big the army is. If they're not there to protect the city, they're useless. So if we had a God that wasn't awake always, who wasn't there always, who, was above, who wasn't above and beyond time and space, he wouldn't be a good protector. But he is a God who's there. And this is an argument against deism here, because you know deism, the idea that like God set everything in motion and then took his hands off of it and let it go. That's not what God says about it. He says, I'm actively there always. The psalm says, I can make my bed in Sheol and you're there. Make my bed on the top of the mountain and you're there. In the heavens, you're there. God is there and he's able to protect you. He's a father that's not absent. That's a big thing. That's a bad father is a father who's absent, who's not there. That was a great blessing in my life was my dad was there very frequently. He didn't work a bunch of overtime. He didn't uh, go on trips without us or something. Um, he didn't have his own things going on like hobbies that took time away from us. He was at, you know, as much as he could be, he was at every soccer game, right? which was difficult. There were like three of us playing soccer at once, so he couldn't be there for everything. But guess what? God's not constrained by time and space. He's there. Even my father, who, who attempted to be a good father, couldn't be there every moment. He had to go work, or he had to go watch another sibling play soccer. But our heavenly father is always there. That's so important, guys. He's always there. When you're at your lowest and you cry out to him, he hears and he's there. When you're at your highest, he's there celebrating with you. When the enemy is attacking, you're not alone. He's there. So a good father also provides Luke 12:24 Consider the ravens that they neither sow nor reap they have no storeroom nor barn and yet God feeds them How much more valuable are you than the birds I think that's really funny <laughs> Like it's ridiculous to think that some bird is more valuable to God than you are But honestly it wouldn't, if, if it weren't something that hit close to home for a lot of us, it wouldn't be in the Bible. If it wasn't a reality that some people think that birds are more valuable to God than they are, it wouldn't need to be said. You're more valuable than a bird to God. Way more valuable. And he will provide for you. I think this is a key point um, also because, you know, this is something Romans 8 deals with all the time is like working against our own strivings and our own works-based theology where we think somehow um, the only way I'm going to get out of the spiritual warfare is if I pray hard enough or if I, like I do, 
you know, this or that. Or the only way that, like, I'm going to come out of this depression is if I will myself to be happy or something. We're constantly striving and trying to do the work because either we have the pride that thinks we can do it better than God or we have the fear that God just can't do it. He can't provide for us. He can't provide the joy for us in this season. He can't provide for us the healing that we need. And maybe we think, we'll give him a couple chances. We'll pray for healing like once or twice. But then after that, if he hasn't answered it, we'll go about it like our own ways. And we'll quit trusting God for it. I'm just condemned to this life of pain and misery until I die. And then there will be more pain and misery. God is able to provide and he loves us enough that he will provide for us. That's a good father. You know, the problem with, with fathers that are, you know, and, and it's a common movie trope is like this father who's like either drunk or a gambler or whatever where he takes the family's money and then he spends it all once he, he gets it. And so this family's left without provision. There's not a whole lot of movies about the mom doing that. Because that's a father's job is to provide. I know in our our modern world, like totally there's relationships where where wives are the breadwinners, they make the majority of the money, but this provision is so much more than just money, guys. It's more than material goods. It's up to a, a good father to provide, yes, material goods. That's a really important part. If you can't feed your children, there's an issue and you need to seek help. But a father provides stability for a family. You know, he's providing the emotional stability and atmosphere of a, of a household. A, a good father provides um, a vision for a family, a purpose, a family name, a reason. A good father provides peace and joy. And um, one of my favorite things about what fathers provide is laughter. You know, uh, dad jokes are a thing because that's so deeply set inside our identity as fathers. Because that comes from our father in heaven who provides those things for us. And he's capable and he wants to. Okay? He's capable and he wants to. He's good and he's able. And lastly, and I think this thing's the most important thing, this is what the ending of Romans 8 does, is it hits this point home. Okay? A lot of us want to just be raised. We want, you know, yes, give us protection. Yes, you know, provide for us, give us, you know, our material needs and everything, you know, the skills we need for the future and all this stuff. Uh, provide for us, protect us. Uh, but when it comes to who I am, I want to decide that. 
We think it, you know, the idea that a son would take over the family business is anathema to us. It's crazy. It's ridiculous. Why would, why would someone enslave their child to take over their family business or something like that? A lot of us sit here and look at how bad our fathers are and we think, I never want to be like them. And, and for a lot of us, that's probably a good thing. The identity our fathers gave us was bad and wrong. Right? This is a key thing here where a lot of our parents... Okay, there's a lot of parents who do a somewhat decent job of protecting their children. If they grow up, that means they didn't die. So they protected them sufficiently enough, I guess. And they also provided for them some things. Again, they provided them food. They didn't starve to death. They had a, a roof over their heads, probably. And this is a lot of parents in America. But a lot of fathers succeed in giving an identity, but that identity is awful, wretched, and horrid. I can't tell you how many fathers, uh, they may not have physically abused their children or anything like that, but they verbally abuse them, telling them, uh, you know, telling their daughters, you're not beautiful. Or telling their sons, you'll never amount to anything. This is awful. The, there's fathers out there, a lot of fathers out there, who in our wickedness and our evil and our pride and the deceit of our hearts, I sent, assign identities that are just untrue. And the, the, why this is such a big deal, why a father is such a big deal is because children hear these identities. They know deep down in them that this is the person's who's supposed to assign the identity to me, and they accept that identity wholeheartedly. Whether you're sitting in the pews right now, agreeing with me or disagreeing with me, you could be agreeing and saying, yeah, my dad said awful things to me. And beyond that, maybe he didn't even say those things to me. An absence of identity is just as bad as no identity. Hatred is just as bad as indifference. It's not just that a father should tell his daughter that she's beautiful or he shouldn't say you're ugly. He, he needs to tell her that she's beautiful. It's not enough to just not lie. You have to tell the truth about who they are in God's eyes. And so we're sitting, you know, there's people sitting in the pews right now whose parents spewed lies over them or their, their father was absent uh, emotionally and never told them who they were going to be or who they and, may, and you consciously know that that's true and that those are lies but we've accepted as part of our personalities part of who we are and there's a lot of healing that needs to happen but we need to acknowledge that there's been damage done to us by our earthly fathers and the only way that we can see that is if we see who the who our Father in heaven is and how good he is and what kind of identity, what he says. You know, that old phrase like, do you know who my dad is? Like, do you know who your dad is? <laughs> right? Do you know who your dad is? Do you know what your identity is? Because 
I would take what God says about me way more seriously than what my earthly father has said about me. And in fact, the only thing that I take from my earthly father as a true identity is when he's saying what God said about me. I was blessed to have that a lot. I was blessed to have a, a, an earthly father who, who mostly just told me who my heavenly father was and what he thought about me. But a lot of us haven't been that blessed. And even in, in that blessing, you know, my earthly father missed points. He missed identity things that I wouldn't have known unless I read the Bible, unless I went through Romans 8 and wrestled with it. So I'm going to try and get through this sort of quickly. So now that we know who Abba Father is, let's talk about adoption. Real quickly, um, it's legal and binding, which means it can't be undone. It's a covenant. So if someone comes up to you and says, like, I'm adopting you, and then you're adopted, uh, you're now a part of that family, and you can't just run away. You can't say, mm, I didn't choose you. It, this goes both, no, it doesn't go both ways. You get adopted, and then you're a part of that family. Okay? That's how it, at least that's how it worked when they were writing the, the Bible. And so that's how we need to understand. It's legal and binding, can't be undone. It also means that it's equal to natural born sonship and daughtership. It holds just as much weight, okay? Um, this is hard for us to understand, too. We, for some reason in our culture, we put this high value on having our own children. And just the fact that we say having our own children, that's a ridiculous lie. An adopted child is your own child. They're just as much your child as someone that was born by you. Because in the end, uh, you know, this is true for like... Like, this is true for Samuel. If you go look at Samuel's story, he was given up by his mother to say, like, yes, he was born my son, but honestly, I'm just stewarding him for God. And so if he goes with this priest and learns from him, he's stewarding him just as much as I was stewarding him. So adoption is, in the end, we're just stewarding God's children. And so it is equal. It's equal. And I want to get this point across too. How God the Father relates to Christ the Son is how he relates to us. In Scripture, it talks about us being co-heirs and brothers and sisters to Christ, which means we have the same Father. And you may, have, you may talk to people who are bad fathers, and they may say, I have a favorite child, but they're bad fathers. God doesn't have a favorite child. He loves you the same way he loves Jesus Christ. So let's talk about children and co-heirs really quick. Romans 8.28, um, we're called by God, we're chosen by him. He's picked us out. He said, this is the one I'm adopting. And it says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We're also called into family. You know, when you're adopted, you don't only get new, a new father, you get a new mother and new siblings. 
You're into a family. You play by the same rules. So if Christ suffered, we're going to suffer. And if Christ is glorified, we'll be glorified. Right? Romans 8.17 says, And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. You know, the, prodigal, the story of the prodigal son is he left his family. He basically said, he tried to say, I'm undoing my sonship. I don't want to be a part of this family. Which we know is not, you can't do that. Right? Eventually he comes back. He squandered his piece of his inheritance. He comes back and uh, he, you know, his father accepts him with open arms. Right? Which is the par for the course of what we should expect. God to open arms to us. But then his older brother says, I don't want him back because if he rejoins the family, that means he gets more of my inheritance because now we're co-heirs again. And he was selfish and he didn't want to share his inheritance with, with his younger brother who squandered it. But Christ, being our older brother, wants to share his inheritance with us. We're going to get to Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It says, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's saying, this is my inheritance is all authority in heaven and earth. That's Christ's inheritance. Okay, that's what we're hoping for. That's the inheritance that we're co-heirs for. Because then he says, go therefore. Because authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, then you go. That's what we're sharing with, with this family that we we're called into. And lastly, we were called to a purpose. You know, when you join a family, again, like I said, a good father gives an identity. And an identity is a vision, is a mission, is a purpose. It's what we're about. You, you want to be about your father's business. We're not called to be in a family and then do nothing about it. We're called to a namesake. We're, you know. And so this mission is, Christ again, he's saying, all authority in heaven and earth is being given to me. You being a part of my family, go therefore. And what's the mission? What's the whole point? What, what are we using our inheritance for? Because when you're a son of a father, he says, here's my inheritance given to you. Please use it for the purposes that I used it for. You know, this business, this family, you know, these purposes. And he's saying those purposes that we're supposed to use our inheritance for is to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow all that I commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So, you know, uh, I just wanted to get that point across. Hopefully, if you go back and read Romans 8 with that new lens, uh, you'll get something out of it. And hopefully, all of us will rethink what it means to, to be a father, to rethink who our fathers were, and to rethink who God the Father is to us. Because we can't function in this family according to these purposes unless we understand our Father and His will. You know, it, it says that we're more than conquerors in Romans 8. 
that we're going to face this suffering, we're going to face all of this, and we're more, of con- more than conquerors in it. And you can only have that kind of confidence and security if you know you have a good father. You know, if I'm left to do a project on my own, when I was a kid, if I was left to do a project on my own without any guidance or any help, uh, it was daunting. I remember thinking like, I can't clean the bathroom. No one's ever taught me how to clean the bathroom. How am I supposed to clean the bathroom? That's a simple task, right? Me as a kid couldn't figure it out. I had no confidence in my ability to clean a bathroom. But when my father came by and said, I'll show you how to, immediately my confidence and security and my ability to complete the task went up because I knew it wasn't my ability that the cleanliness of the bathroom would rest on. It was my father's ability to teach me and provide me the tools. And I knew he would because I knew he wouldn't let me get a, to get away from doing chores. Uh, but that's the thing. is like when we're called to this, when we're called to go face Satan at his gates, when we're called to go into all the world, into the world that hates God, we're called to go into that world and preach them the good news. When that daunting task of how am I supposed to go up to someone and tell them about God, or what will they think of me? If we rethink our, uh, about that and say, yeah, of course God's going to give me the tools in the moment. Of course I trust in him. It becomes a lot less daunting. You know, I, I think about this sometimes, it's a little off topic, but even the idea of like, I think a lot of us maybe have thought like, what if I was a Christian martyr? Would I be able to stand up to that pain and suffering if I was to be a martyr to not renounce Christ's name, right? Like what would I do if I was in that situation? Would I renounce Christ just to get out of it? I don't think so. I don't think we have to be some specially like tolerant to pain kind of people to get through that because I trust that if I was ever in that kind of situation, God would give me what I needed then and there. God provides for us because he wants us to succeed. So let's close with our communion meditation. Romans 35 through 36 says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or trouble, persecution or famine, nakedness, danger or sword? That seems like all of the bad things. Will any of those bad things separate us from Christ? And then it goes on to say, just as it is written, for the sake, for your sake, for your sake, Father, we are killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And this stuck with me because Christ, our older brother, was the first one to be led like a lamb to the slaughter. And just as he was raised just as Christ in that, that moment, he was provided for by the Father. You know, beyond his light momentary affliction, he was glorified way beyond what we can ever imagine or, or perceive. He didn't die a pointless death. And if he's led to the slaughter like that, if that slaughter 
ends with that glory, I, send me. I trust my father that he'll cover me. Abraham, it says about Abraham that before anyone had ever been raised from the dead, he considered because God loved him so much and he wanted to succeed so much at his calling that when he said, sacrifice Isaac, he's like, well, I I don't understand it, but he wants it to succeed so much that I guess he could even raise him from the dead. He reasoned resurrection through trust in God. And we can reason those kinds of miracles and glory from God because that's just what he said. He's going to accomplish his purposes and it doesn't matter a whole lot to us how he does it. We, we don't find our comfort in his strategies and plans, but in his purposes and his ability to, to get his purposes done. So when we come to the, this table and we take this communion, let, let's remember Christ Let's remember him as our older brother, as the first son. What God did for him, what God the Father did for his son. And join in with Christ. Join in with him in that trust as sons and daughters. And please come.